Welcome to the So Powerful Podcast. This is your host, Jan Cancilla. You know the sound of my sewing machine means it's time for another episode. So let's get started. Happy Thanksgiving, Jason. <laughs> All right. Yes. Happy Thanksgiving to you, too. So how are you and the family going to be celebrating Thanksgiving this year? Well, we've got our baby daughter home from Azusa Pacific uh, for Thanksgiving this year. And we also have my mom who's flown up from California to spend Thanksgiving with us. So that's really fun. We'll have a wonderful time. Of course, the puppy is keeping us all crazy at this point, but I'm sure we'll try to figure out how to include her in Thanksgiving as well. So We all have a lot to be thankful for this Thanksgiving. In today's episode, we are going to be talking about the Three Esters Farm. And, you know, about a year ago in episode 23, we spoke with David Durr, who is the co-founder of the Three Esters Farm and got his perspective, I should say, mm -hmm. from how it was all founded, how that all came about and the adoption of his children, which led to knowledge about the property and and how he ran into you. I, I Spoiler alert, I don't want to give anything away. Sure. But today, we're going to hear it from your point of view. So I'm really interested to hear this. And the other thing is, so much has happened in the last year since mm -hmm. we recorded the episode with David. And we have big plans for the future. And I want to hear about that, too. So let's start at the beginning. How did the farm come about? Tell us that story. Sure. Yeah, I think the pre-story on my side from really the first encounter with the uh, moms and uh, the small group there in, in uh, Nome Bay in March 2009 was really a, about helping them make a difference in the lives of their children. And in the context of the school, they were trying to build a, a school building or raise money for one, they hoped. But the school itself was a real challenge. At that time, they had 475 kids. They didn't have the funding for any kind of food program, daily meals. These are street kids. And then they're kids just that, that come with uh, the clothes on their back and they show up every morning hungry and unfed from home. And the moms there had to cope with that reality. And that was immediately visible to us. And we were aware of that from day one of the first interaction. And, you know, going forward from then until we met David, we really had this I guess you could say shared burden and just an intensity of just a desire to see something happen. These, these kids come from households that do not have any food in the house. And I'm not saying they don't have much food. I'm saying they literally, if you go into their house, there is no cupboard full of food. There is nothing there. They'll live mostly on, uh, families will live on one meal a day in their household, if the mom or dad or caretaker or granny or whoever has figured that that out for that day, it is literally a day by day. And so this is the intensity of the situation. And so you can imagine being a mom and teacher responsible for 475 kids that are all coming there with literally starving bellies. Now, and traditionally in, in Africa, you'll know that the kids are malnourished when their hair is like a rust reddish color. And you'll see kids who are clinically malnourished, and you'll know that that's a sign of it. And so this is the context in which trying to figure out how to have food for these kids was so, so important. And so that was sort of the backstory. And then, then when we met David, things began to change. 
Now, did you know David before you ran into him? You, you did. I did. We were colleagues at World Vision. I was there for 16 years. He still works there today. I left in 2010 and him and I were coworkers as in any large organization. You kind of know people from projects or meetings or whatever. And, and we were never um, really in the same team or department or anything, but we knew of each other and we'd worked together on a few different things. His primary role back in those days was related to the shipping containers and the gifting kind donations of of, uh, you know, physical products and that whole system. And I was on the human resources and, and then for a long time on the fundraising, major gift fundraising side. But yeah, we, we do know each other from that context. Okay. So there was a meeting in 2000, I believe it was 2015. Is that yeah. correct? Yeah. That's and, right. and, and so, you know, he told us there was a meeting, but how did the meeting come about? Did oh. you contact World Vision? Did they call you? Mm-hmm. What was going on there? Sure. It, that's a, actually a great question. And it's just neat to see how it weaves together with the purse programming work. We we had done the original So Powerful Purse project in 2014 and had the purses and, and World Vision was gracious to say to us that they would ship them to Zambia for us. And so at that year, it was 503 purses. So it was, I don't know, four boxes or something like that. I think now we have 150 in each box. So even just a few boxes that needed to go. So they, they offered to ship them. And then we were in our second cycle of, of doing the purses, I believe, and that shipment going where it was um, the second year, I think it was 1600 that we we were kind of in this process where we knew we had like tripled or something like that. I think that was sort of the time frame where World Vision had been gracious to us, and they also were trying to understand what we were doing. And so one of our board members, Dana Buck, was a real, real people connector, and he's just he's a good uh, you know, networker. And so he had talked to people that he worked with there at World Vision and said, this purse program employing these moms to make reusable hygiene pads and address this issue of menstrual hygiene management and this issue of girls staying home is really important work. And you folks, you, you, he kind of, you know, pointed his fingers at you folks at World Vision who care about such things, water and sanitation and, and hygiene and, you know, that kind of thing should come and hear what we're doing here in Zambia. And so he set up a meeting and asked me to come and speak about our program and how we were employing moms. They were making reusable hygiene pads and that we had donors involved by making purses. And um, they just wanted me to come and tell stories. So I got in the room. And there was probably 10 or 12 director level people. I mean, I was kind of like, what in the world? So I, you know, kind of was a little bit like, okay, I know most of these people, but not all of them. But that was the meeting that David wandered into. And from his telling of the story, he really had no reason to be there directly, but he really felt strongly prompted by the Holy Spirit to go to this meeting, just get to that meeting. And from his point of view, it's almost this like this, you know, this, this Jesus thing in his daily life at, of work, which is really interesting to me. And I'm just like, wow. Um, and, well, that, and that was the meeting. So. Yeah. From his point of view, he was, he was like looking at his calendar saying, I'm too busy for this. Yeah. I can't do this, yeah. but I'm going to do it. Yeah. So that that's very cool. Okay. So you, you have your talk and after the meeting, David comes up to you and what does he tell you? Yeah. It was just me focused hundred percent on the purse program, the reusable hygiene pads, you know, the issues of the girls skipping school. And that was a whole context, the entire meeting. Um, But in the meeting, I did say at some point, these moms 
are passionate about these kids in this community school, having a building, getting fed, getting through their education. And so that was what, you know, that was the only commentary I made about, you know, you know, lunches or anything like that. And so then he came up after and he said, you know, it's might be funny, but um, I actually have a 10 acre farm plot right outside of, uh, of Lusaka in Chingala. And if you'd ever see your way to needing it for use to help the, the school there, you know, let me know. I'd be open to that. It's not being used for anything right now. And uh, I, you know, I thanked him and we chatted and then, then I just left. And the whole way home, I just kept thinking, how could we use that farm property and talk to Esther about it? And the rest is history. I mean, she was like, yes, please. Let's do this. Let's go, you know? Uh, so that was it. Oh, that's amazing. And so the farm is called the Three Esters Farm. What's the origin of that name? Why did you pick that name? Well, it was it was a fun process of making the name, and it was sort of a little bit of naming by committee. We we wanted a name for the farm, and we wanted it to have symbolic meaning and importance. And so we brainstormed a lot of ideas. And then one of the one of the biblical narratives or stories that somebody mentioned in the conversation was it's just such a God thing that this farm is here for such a time as this. And that's a reference to the story of Esther in the Bible, where she was prepared for such a time as this is where that phrase comes from. Um, and so that's an Esther. And then as it happens, somebody made the comment, well, that's Esther from the Bible. And we have our program director in Zambia's Esther McCandewire. And we had two Esthers. And then David said, my daughter's name is Esther, the daughter he adopted from Zambia. And so we, we said, well, we've got three Esthers here. in the midst. So what if it's the three Esthers farm and we've got a, a daughter of Zambia, uh, and Esther Durr, and we've got uh, Esther McCandewire, program director and really, you know, a mom uh, and leader there. And then we've got Esther from the Bible. And so there you go. So that's the story turned into a fun little name. Well, and you know, now it just rolls off our tongue. I mean, it's just such a great name. And you know, I'm not sure everybody knows who the three Esters are, but that's great. That's fantastic. So, you know, in the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about uh, some various topics, one of which was the impact of local hiring. And Mm -hmm. how does the three Esters farm fit into that philosophy? Oh, it's a great question. You know, I've been thinking about this literally since 2015. For the first two, three, four years of the farm, we were really just focused on building infrastructure. And we had an amazing, amazing uh, founding story with our team members there. And this is a really fun part of the story to me as well. When Esther was told about this property, she had no idea where it was. I mean, she knew generally the region, but she drove out there one day. And it's, as you might imagine, a dirt road off the beaten path quite a ways. And um, so she drove up to where she thought it was. And a man walked across the little dirt road from from the neighboring property. And he said, are you lost? And she said, no, I said, I think this, I think this land here is, is my land, (laughs) you know, it's my property. And said he kind of laughed and said, no, I don't think so. (laughs) And uh, so then he said, she said, well, I'm Esther. And this is the, this is, this property is owned by a man named David Durr, who has 10 acres here. And, and the, and the original owner's farm is somewhere around. His name is Sandy. And then um, the man who was talking to her, his name is Nicholas. He said, oh, okay. Yeah. Sandy's house is over there. And my property I work on is over here. I'm one of the farmhands. 
So he basically, from moment one, began to orient her to the location, the situation where it was in relation to other things, and just became an incredible help to her. He lived right across the road in a tiny little cinder block house with a large family. I think it was eight or nine, depending on when his daughter and son-in-law lived with them or didn't live with them in the house and their kids. And his wife, Lillian, was there. And over the course of about six months, he just became a very, very helpful person. And when we started talking about the farm being ready to, to use, we had this, our own caretaker house that we had built and a well and, you know, gates and, and the property was you know, cleaned off. And, and I said, Esther, who are you going to hire, you know, for the, to be the caretaker? And she said, you know, I think I know just the guy. And so she talked to Nicholas and Lillian, and they became our first caretakers of the property and farmhands and really ran the farm for the first five years, six years. And their influence and, and help was critical. And that to us, that was a central part of the story was like, is God showing up in the midst of this with the people and the property and the mission? And the answer was, yes, he had prepared the way. And and Lillian and Nicholas did a fantastic job for years and years and really made the farm established um, with their hard work. And so th there's one piece. The other piece I would say is the challenge of the farm is it's really not an intensive place for a lot of, uh, you know, employment or labor. Uh, for the first, you know, two, three, four years, it was just the two of them. Now, in the current situation, we have three people working on the farm. But in this just last year, what we've started to do is integrate this Tikandani Garden Program as a ministry of the farm. And the core thesis there is we can employ local young men right in Nombe Compound to make backyard gardens. And as a ministry of the farm, we'll also have these micro gardens, currently five team members there, and they're helping 10 households each. So 50 households have backyard gardens now right in Nombe compound. And it's considered a ministry of the Thresher's farm. It's leading us into, a, a, I think, a dramatic era of growth in terms of employment for impact. And that's what one of the pieces I'm really excited about. Yeah. What are some of the crops that are successful on the farm that I think you've maybe also incorporated into the Tikandani garden program too, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. There's uh, vegetable crops that do really, really well in Zambia. It's a great place for growing and temperate climate and there are multiple crops a year of veg product as the British like to call it. And so cabbage is a big thing that we grow a lot of onions, tomatoes, a vegetable they call rape and it's canola, basically canola oil. If you're familiar with canola oil, the canola plant, they call rape. They call it rapeseed oil there, but it's, um, it's a green that you, uh, you can grow and eat. And then the seeds you can, you know, do, do pressed oil from. And so vegetables have done really, really well there for us. So we have a huge section of the garden that's vegetables. We also have part of the garden that's uh, been uh, planted with maize repeatedly. And that was debatable as to whether maize would do okay there without a lot of fertilizer and, and special treatment, but it has done okay for us there. And then we have a large portion of the farm now that's dedicated to orchard product trees. Basically, uh, bananas is a large, large section now. And then mango, papaya, avocado. And we're, we're really excited about the orchard fruits and the long-term value of having large, you know, outputs of, of fruit, basically, that 
kids would eat and love, you know? <laughs> and so there, there's a, sort of the layout of it. Yeah. Well, that's great. Well, and you know, I, I've read that there were some ups and downs in terms of getting the farm started. There was yeah. Uh, there were some plants that goats loved and there was a, a storm <laughs> that that wiped out the electrical power for a while and yeah. ups and downs but it sounds like things are a lot more stable now. Yeah, we've really I think gone through the phase of uh sort of uh, initial starts and stops. Uh, you know, one whole crop was ruined one time by white flies. They ate everything, but we just didn't know that we needed to plant enough uh onions around uh, yeah. the cabbage and tomatoes because the white flies hate the onions. And so, so that, you know, it's just learning things. And, and, but we have had some great advisors really help us speak into the strategy and process. And, you know, it took, it literally took over two years for the municipal power company in Zambia to turn power on at the farm property. So the whole first two years we were running off a generator. And so, you know, there's just, just challenges like that, but we feel like we've gotten through a good number of those. And We've got several wells on the property now where our big project we're going to do soon is solar power, which will really help us be in essence, independent, you know, from the Zambian power grid, uh, which we're really excited about as well. Well, and I do have one question. I've seen photos of the children. They were each given a cabbage. The cabbage yeah. is about the size of a basketball. It's They're huge. more huge, yeah. I know, than anything <laughs> I've ever seen in a grocery store. So when they take those home, what kind of a meal does that prepare? Mm -hmm. How long would that last a family? Yeah. So and it's an important kind of technical point. The whole purpose of the farm is to produce food that we can use in no Bay compound to help feed the hungry kids. So, so we're not trying to grow crops and sell them, that kind of thing. So that's not the model. The model is feed the kids. And so... With vegetable crops, that means it's really sporadic right now. And that's the big challenge we're trying to overcome is how do we get daily, five days a week meals integrated into our work going forward? And we're focused on that. But, but anyway, so they'll get the cabbage or they'll get a bag of tomatoes. And we frequently, if they're not used during a meal at the school, like if there's a special, you know, they've got some, some porridge for a daytime meal where they introduce the vegetables, then they're given to the kids to take home. Traditional meal in Zambia that's a very, very common daily meal would be shima and greens. And the best example I could say to Americans is if you're familiar with cream of wheat with no butter and brown sugar, because when I was a kid, it was cream of wheat with like a cup of brown sugar and butter, but whatever. So shima is like that, but it's real thick. It's almost like you, you can grab it with your hands and use it almost like sop of like something where it's almost like as thick as a bread product almost. That's Shima. And then greens is any greens that they'll have that they'll cut up and cook. That's a very, very common daily meal. That would be what they would eat if you said, what do you want to have today? There's no protein generally. They won't have a chicken or any pork or anything, anything like that. That would be maybe at Christmas for, you know, if they were doing really well that year. Yeah. So that's, so that's how it's used. So then, you know, when the tomatoes or cabbage or um, you know, onions are sent home with kids, the mom will cook it right up and they'll have an afternoon meal and it's gone. And unless it's, you know, the giant cabbages, which we are making these cabbages that are insanely huge, the, you know, might be an, an extra day out of it, but that's, you know, that's the challenge. And I wish I could say the world is all fine now and everybody's well-fed and, you know, and full, but it's still very challenging to be in the situation we're in with these kids who are just still struggling every day with, you know, food insecurity. Yeah. When we think about 
the farm and feeding the children. Is there a scripture verse that comes to mind that helps you go forward and, and, and comfort us and guide us? Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's, I, there's a lot that come to my mind. We talked in our prior episode about God's heart for orphans and about scriptures related to that in the old Testament. I think the one that probably comes to my mind most often when I think about these things is just simply Matthew 25 where Jesus made it very clear that at the end of the age, he was going to divide everybody into two, two big old groups on the left and on the right, you got two groups and he could have said anything there. He could have said, you know, you guys on the left there, you, you worshiped me and went to church every Sunday and therefore go to heaven, you, you enter, enter, you know, into heaven. He could have said anything. He, he could have said, you guys loved God more than in the other guys or other people. He could have said anything right there. And his first statement was, for I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me and I needed clothes and you clothed me. So that is Christ calling us to a lifestyle that cares for people who are desperately in need of food and clothing and are, uh, you know, in very, very challenging situations. And so to me, that's really the, the call of our heart and our passion. And once you go there, you're just ruined because you've seen it. Once you see it, you have to deal with it. You have to say to yourself, I'm accountable for what's happening here. And that's it. Uh, sorry. Mm -hmm. I'm feeling it too. So what is your vision for the future of the farm? Where do you see it going from here? I think we're really excited about this integration of taking the farm and the focus of it into Nome Compound directly with this Tikandani program and the backyard micro gardens. We're also still working with strategies to figure out how to have daily food provided at the schools. The needs care school has been incredibly blessed and they've actually had, you know, this start and stop funding for daily meals throughout the last 10, 12 years from other donors and people who have stepped up, but they still don't have a daily, you know, lunch program that's sufficient. But then that's, I would say probably one of the best schools in Nombe compound in terms of being equipped or supported. There are other schools you go to and they don't even have, it's not even a thought in their mind that they could feed the kids because they don't even have a school building that would allow for, you know, that kind of thing. And so our quest is to continue to work through this idea of local employment for local impact. And that local impact is feeding these kids. And so we're working on strategies for that. I really honestly believe that we're going to see exponential growth in this area where we have just, just huge opportunity. And, you know, there are things coming together, even right now as we're, you know, recording this things coming together in terms of conversations and plans that might unlock huge opportunity for us to serve more kids. And that's really exciting. So. Well, on Thanksgiving day, I'm very, very thankful for what has happened so far and thankful for what God has in plan, the plans he has for the future. So. Amen. Amen. Thank, thank you very much. I will talk with you soon. Bye-bye. If what you've heard today inspires you to want to make a difference, I urge you to explore the So Powerful website at 
www.sopowerful.org. That's S-E-W-P-O-W-E-R-F-U-L dot O-R-G. The website has great information about the organization. It's where you can download the free purse patterns or even make a donation. We hope you will join us again next week when we bring you another So Powerful story. Thanks for listening. Now, go out and have a So Powerful day.